भद्रम कर्णी शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येमाक्षजत्रा स्थिरंगैस्तुष्टवागम सस्तनो व्यषेम देवित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति नूषा विश्ववेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्षो अरिष्टने स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओ शाति 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 सो वी आर डूइंग द मांडुक्य कारिका एंड वी आर ऑन चैप्टर टू we were on verse 31 which is the most important verse of the entire uh, chapter chapter 2 and a, it's a pretty radical verse very shocking kind of verse because it says na nirodho na cha utpatti na baddho na cha sadhaka nam mukshur navai mukta ittesha paramarthata what does it mean it says that there is no there is no creation no cessation of the universe there is nobody in bondage nobody struggling to get out of bondage nobody doing spiritual practices nobody who's free also liberated also and this apparently is the final truth which is very shocking last time we discussed the whole the whole um class was a discussion of this that the way we have understood vedanta or in general spiritual life that there is a problem which needs solving we are in bondage and we need freedom from bondage and for that purpose there are certain practices to be done and we do these practices finally there's something to be attained where we become free enlightened and free and there is a world which has been somehow created and the world is created and destroyed and so there's a whole story which we have learned and which seems pretty uh, convincing and here the whole thing is denied the whole thing is denied and what it means of course we saw last time i will not repeat on the whole class last time's class but just um, to follow on from last time's teaching we um, saw the commentary of shankaracharya we did a close reading of shankaracharya's commentary last time and um, he raised some important issues so that discussion i'll quickly sum up before moving on because that's germane to the what's going to happen now next what he said was so there is an opponent who raises a question the question is you denied everything creation of the universe uh, there's no universe created obviously there's no universe there to seize there is no bondage there is no liberation there is no spiritual seeking there no no spiritual practitioners denying everything now if you deny everything and you have not established non duality you have denied entire samsara so when we say duality i'll keep using the word duality don't uh, by duality what we mean is this samsara which we experience this world of dualities which we experienced by duality is not meant um here the dualistic religions because that's often that's the way we use the terms not dvaita vedanta it's not that's not the way the term was used in those days so by dualities meant just the world of differences that we see and inhabit this world basically 
The reality of this world is denied. Not the fact that we are experiencing it, but that there is really such a thing that is denied. Now, you have denied all of this and you have not established non-duality. <clears throat> Look at the verse. It denies duality. That there is a world to get out of, samsara to get out of. There are practitioners who will practice certain spiritual disciplines and there are some people who are liberated. All these things are denied. This is a world, the samsara, world of dualities is denied. Fine. But you have not established non-duality. Nothing about non-duality is said in this verse. Do you notice this? So the question arises then, having denied the world of differences, the only world we know, and not having established anything else, then the only result is emptiness, shunyam, the void, nothingness. So that's what you want to say, there's nothing. And then the answer was, do you remember, Shankaracharya says, no, when you deny the, the reality of the snake, what you are saying is the snake is an appearance, the reality is that a rope. A rope is mistaken to, as a snake. Isn't that what we are saying? Shankaracharya said, I have already mentioned this here earlier. So, whenever you, whenever you find out the falsity of something, you are also implying there is a truth. Compared to the truth, this is false. So, compared to the non-dual Brahman, this world of differences is an appearance. Though we experience it, though we use it, but it's not intrinsically real. So, even though the verse is entirely negative, not this, not this, but it does not mean that there is nothing at all. When you expose something as false, you are also exposing the reality behind it. Then you remember the next objection immediately came that um, the snake rope example doesn't apply here. You are giving the snake rope example, it doesn't apply here because according to you, according to you means according to us, the non-dualists, even the rope is false. So the snake is something false, a rope appears as a snake, the snake is false. But the rope is also false because everything in this world is according to you false. So ultimately nothing will be revealed and everything is false. So back to emptiness or shunyam or the void. And Shankaracharya's answer there was no. Whenever falsity is revealed, how do you reveal the falsity? By discovering the truth underlying it. So he gives an example. Um, the snake is variously experienced, the rope is variously experienced as a snake, some say it's a snake, some say, some sees it, see it as a garland, some see it as, um, as um, a trickle of water or a crack in the earth. And when the light of knowledge is brought to bear on it, what happens? All these alternatives, all of them disappear except one. Are you following what I'm saying? What will disappear? Somebody said, it, it's a snake. Somebody said, no, 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 it's a crack on the ground. Somebody said, it's a, um, it's a garland discarded from a temple. All three alternatives disappear when you bring the light of knowledge to bear on it. Suppose just shine a torch on it. All three will disappear. What will remain? The rope. The rope is revealed and as the reality and the false alternatives are dismissed, right? So when the reality is uncovered, the, fal the falsity of, of the others is exposed. They are dismissed, they are, they are negated. So when knowledge comes, everything is not negated. The reality is uh, shown and the false is negated. 
This is the question. Yes. Tony, um, don't you have to negate the rope also? And I think the key here is you said that you are negating it. I am negating it. Mm. I am the only reality. All the else is, is an observed reality. It's not, not real. Correct. But here he's using the, uh, the rope as an example. Ultimately, the rope also is negated. The whole world is negated. But it's an example. The point he wants to make here, in fact, what you said, Shankaracharya actually mentions that too. In the next line he mentions. He says two things here. Remember the question. The question was, um, isn't the rope also negated? So ultimately, in your, in your system. So by knowledge, you negate everything. That's, that's your idea. Then non-duality is not established. Shankaracharya says, no, wait. He gives a twofold answer. The second one is what you said. The first, first answer is, the first step is, when you get knowledge of the rope, the rope is revealed by knowledge, and by that knowledge, the false perceptions of snake, crack on the water, trickle of water, uh, all of those are negated. Point one. Point two, he makes this what Stan just said. Negating something by knowledge always means that there is a negator. There is an awareness to which falsity and uh, reality are revealed. That awareness cannot be denied. So that's the second thing he mentions. Now, a really subtle question comes up. Next. The, ne the subtle question which came up next is, look, in all of these cases, what you did was, you dismissed the false by revealing the true. You showed that the rope is true and therefore the snake is false. So you have to uncover the real. In every case, in Sanskrit it is called adhishthana, the ground of error. The ground of error. The basis of error. What is the ground of error? Rope is the ground of the snake error. The error that I mistake the rope for a snake. What is the ground of that error? What is the locus of that error? The rope. So rope is called adhishthana. Now how does knowledge function? It reveals the locus, it reveals the adhishthana, it reveals the ground and thereby negates the error. With me so far? But otherwise the next step won't make sense. Uh, by revealing the adhishthana, by revealing the ground of error, knowledge dismisses the false. Knowledge negates the false. So the key is to reveal the, um, the ground of error. The key is to reveal the rope. In the example, rope snake example, the key is to reveal the rope. But in your case, in the goal here is not rope and snake. The goal is Brahman and the world, the ultimate reality and the world. In this case, the Shastra, the Upanishad, cannot reveal Brahman. Because haven't you said Brahman is beyond words? You cannot reveal Brahman. Whatever you talk about, it's not Brahman. Because words cannot reveal Brahman. If the words cannot reveal Brahman, Brahman remains unrevealed, the ground of error is unrevealed, how will you negate the, uh, the false? Do you see the question? Yes. The way to know that the snake is false is to reveal the rope. It's a rope, not a snake. You must have such a knowledge. Such a knowledge must be possible. In that case, the way to know if you say the world is false, Brahman is re real, then the way to know this is to reveal Brahman. Show me Brahman then I will know that the world is false. But you have also said Brahman is beyond words, beyond language, beyond conception. So your texts cannot actually reveal Brahman. In that case you are trapped. Uh, 
without revealing Brahman, you cannot prove the falsity of the world and Brahman cannot be revealed. Hence, what will you do? Now, what was Shankaracharya's answer? Very interesting answer. He says, wait a minute. In every false perception, there is a part of that perception is true. In every, I'll repeat, in every false perception, there is a part which is true, which is correct. And that is there underneath every false perception. For example, how, how do you say that? When a rope was mistaken variously, some person said it is a snake, some person said it is a trickle of water, some person said, come on, come on, come on, sit. Some person said it is a garland, discarded garland. Look at the sentences. It is a snake. It is a discarded garland. It is a trickle of water. Now, garland, water, trickle of water, snake, these are false. They are not really there. But the first part of it, it is, it is, it is. That's true. Because when you get knowledge, what will you say? It is a rope. It is a rope is correct knowledge. That means the it is part was common to all of them. Not making sense? It is making sense? <laughs> it is. It is a snake. It is a trickle of water. Do you understand the examples also? In the, in, the, in the darkness, a trickle of water will look like a little curvy little thing there on the ground. A rope might look like that. It is, what was the other one? A garland. A crack in the ground or a garland discarded from a temple. All of these are false. These are all false. You are false. It's actually a rope. It is the rope which was mistaken as one, two, three. All mistakes are negated when you reveal a rope. But then what knowledge will you get? When you finally get correct knowledge, what will it be like? It will be, it is a rope. Now look at this. It is. It's common everywhere. Which means, even in false knowledge, when you said it is, huh? when you said it is, it, it was that, that, part of the, that part of the perception was correct. So, what's your point? My point is, Shankaracharya says, in all our experiences throughout our lives, the objective part, the things which we think, I am happy, I am sad, I am tall, short, I am a man, I am a woman, all of these are appearances and they keep coming and going and changing. But one thing is common. I am, I am, I am. This sense of conscious experience, the awareness in which all these adjectives come and go. That is common. And that is the truth. And that is continuously revealed through every experience. I amness, the awareness. I am conscious. This consciousness is continuously revealed in every experience. So, so, so what? Now go back to your question. Your question was that without revealing the truth, how can you negate everything? And the truth in this case, Brahman cannot be revealed. What Shankaracharya is saying is, Brahman, your real nature is continuously revealed. 
it is being revealed by itself why because it is not like a like a rope which has to be revealed by a torch with your eyes the sense of i this awareness is always there all throughout your life it is in fact the very ground of all your experiences all your experiences throughout your lives are in the awareness which you are without that awareness no experience so that awareness they call it self revealed swaprakasha swayam prakasha and the upanishads again and again speak about it consciousness need not be revealed you say by what method will you reveal consciousness what scripture what technique will you reveal consciousness foolish question consciousness is self revealed it's like asking this light reveals everything in the room now do you need another light to reveal this light no this light is shining revealing itself first and then uses its light the light reveals everything in this room that's an example but consciousness is a light like a light it reveals itself continuously and reveals everything else also so consciousness is continuously revealed but the problem is consciousness is revealed in association with many things with a world of duality this world of duality alone is negated by the this verse once the world of duality is negated negated means you realize it is false it's not real and it's superimposed on you it does not belong to you it appears in you it is experienced in you but it does not stick to you it it is not real and therefore i the unlimited consciousness becomes clear to me that i am this unlimited consciousness otherwise what happens is i the consciousness is continuously revealed but in association with many many qualities and attributes good and bad if you take those qualities and attributes to be real then you are in samsara if you take them to be appearances in you experiences in you and you being the unlimited unattributed consciousness you are immediately free so shankaracharya says here he gives a list of i think 16 attributes as examples we read that last time he says sukhi aham i am happy dukhi aham i am i am sad notice one thing common i am mudo aham i am foolish confused i am aham jato i am born aham mrito i am i am dead or nobody says i am dead maybe we can say i am finished <laughs> i am done for lot of people in wall street when the market goes down i am finished so finished mrito aham jirna i am old aham dehavan i am embodied aham pashyami i see smell here pashyami means i see but you can extend it to all the sensory inputs i see smell hear taste touch aham vyakta aham abhyakta i am famous or i am well known or i am um unimportant i am i am not known aham karta i am the doer aham phali i am the experiencer of the results of my actions karta bhokta i am the doer and i am the experiencer i think this is what we in the gita class last time do you remember we did if the slayer thinks he slays and the slain thinks that he is slain neither know the truth emerson's poem brahma deep philosophically speaking what is he what is he saying that if you think you are the doer or if you think that you are the experiencer of the acts and uh, the results of action neither of them is true 
You are the consciousness in which these things are appearing. Aham sanyuktaha, I meet people, I am with people, with family, with friends, with community. Aham yuktaha, I am devoid of everything, abundant, solitary, and lonely. Aham kshinaha, I, I, I am uh, uh, starved. Uh, um, I am aham riddaha, I am becoming old. Um, 16, if you count actually, has given 16. These are examples. It's not just these 16. Anything that you may say, anything that you add to I am, all of these are negated by this verse. Negated by this verse means they are, it does not say that you do not experience it. What it says is that they are not real. They are appearances in you. And we know why are they appearances in you or the two reasons it was established. Gaudapada used two hammer blows because Anitya Drishyatva. Anitya. It is, in, it is impermanent. It comes and goes. If it comes and goes, I am young. Not for long. Very soon gone. <laughs> There's this uh, funny story about a young man, um, a rabbi who was very young, and the con people in the congregation complained to the chief rabbi that he's too young to be a rabbi. And the chief rabbi wrote back, You are right. Youth is a defect, but give him time. <laughs> it's a defect eminently curable by time. So, now what Vedanta points out is, I am young, the youth is gone. Are you still there? Don't you say, I am the one who was young. That means you are still there. Youth has gone. Happy, sad, from the morning till now. How many times happy? How many times sad? How many times curious? How many times bored? How many times sleepy? How many times alert? Yet, what Vedanta wants you to notice, note that you are the same awareness which experienced sad, happy, curious, bored, excited, alert, sleepy. All those things came and went. You are there. So those things are impermanent. Point one. And being impermanent, we know the logic. Being impermanent, they do not have, remember, intrinsic existence. If you do not have intrinsic existence, it's a borrowed existence. And that's the definition of falsity. The second one is drishya, an object of awareness. Depends on awareness for its manifestation and existence. It has no intrinsic reality of its own. So for these reasons, all these attributes are appearances in the unattributed consciousness, nirguda chaitanya, in the qualityless, attributeless, pure awareness which you are. None of them stick to you, and even when they appear in you, they are not real. They can really, did, that awareness is not modified by those things. It's a very important point. When you, the consciousness, experience yourself as happy, when you experience yourself as sad, that leaves no trace on you. It has no effect on you, the consciousness. The consciousness remains as it is. It, it illumines the appearance of happiness, it illumines the appearance of uh, misery, and it illumines the disappearance of happiness and the disappearance of misery also. Re the, underneath you, the consciousness, you remain unaffected, unchanged. So this is what he said. One more point he makes, which I did not touch upon last time, very briefly I'll tell you, then we'll go ahead. 
So I am happy. The happy portion is the appearance or I am sad. The sad portion is the appearance. It's not a real quality of consciousness. Consciousness is not qualified by, it's not an attribute for consciousness. So in that case, not happy. Is that a quality then? For example, I will, if I say that I am subject to birth and death. And Vedanta says, no, no, no. Birth and death come and go, you experience them. You are not affected by that. By that. You are the immortal consciousness. Ah, so I am not a mortal being, correct? Then I am immortal. Is that immortality then a quality of consciousness? Is it a quality of consciousness? No, no, no. You are too good as non-dualists. <laughs> but a question like this may come. I am the limited being here in this body. Vedanta says, no, 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 this body and limitation are experienced by you. In dreams you see another body, another world. In deep sleep you see no body and no world, blankness. And so all of these come and go in you, the awareness. The awareness is not limited by them. So I'm unlimited awareness? Yes. Then unlimitedness is a quality of awareness. I am eternal, I am omnipresent. So these are qualities of awareness. Then awareness has qualities. Vedanta says, Shankaracharya says, no, no, that's not the point. Uh, those words are used to negate the misconceptions. Misconceptions are cleared up by the use of these words. But it does not mean that these words also are new qualities for consciousness. It's, it does not mean that I thought I am a mortal being subject to birth and death. Now I stand corrected. I am an immortal being. So my new quality is immortality. No, Shankaracharya says not even that. If you don't use that word, we are already convinced that I am born and I die. We are already convinced I am subject to happiness and misery. So these words negate the misconceptions. Once the misconceptions are negated, these words also have to be dropped. By dropping these words, you do not swing back to the other extreme again. You remain as that consciousness which is beyond expression. The unattributed, unattributed, um, the, the qualityless, the attributeless nature remains, but you no longer can call it attributeless or, or qualityless. Um, I have earlier also I have said, when you say the Atman is all-pervasive, as Brahman is all-pervasive. In Sanskrit, Sarvabhyapi. That is actually taking into account space. Space. If you take space into account, yes. Then what we are talking about here is not limited to one part of that space. But really, even space is an appearance in consciousness. So you cannot say Brahman is all-pervading actually. If you say Brahman is eternal, that is taking into account time. If you take into account time, as we always do, then the mistake we make is that we are born in time, there was a time when I was not, and there will be a time when I will not be there. This is the mistake we make. To correct that mistake, we are told you are eternal. But does it mean that I am something which persists throughout time? Actually, no. It means that time exists or appears in me. I am not in time. Suppose in your dream, in your dream, there is a space which you dream about. Sky is there, 
you know, places where you visit. Now, suppose someone tells you it's all in your dream and all the sky and space is pervaded by you. Everything here is you. In one sense, true. But in another sense, all those things are not there at all. So, you are actually something beyond all those things. They were imagined in you. This is what Vedanta wants to say. It does not say that ultimately, when you say Brahman is Sat, Chit, Ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, even those are terms used to correct our misconceptions. When you say Brahman is existence itself, it corrects the misconception that there is no such thing as Brahman. There is, in a much more real sense than everything else in the world. When you say Brahman is consciousness, it corrects the misconception that Brahman is something else, an object. No, no. It is you, the conscious subject. But ultimately, Brahman is not even consciousness. It's only in connection with a mind, a mind, senses, and a world to be experienced, Brahman appears as consciousness to you. If you remove the mind and the senses, what in deep sleep, for example, even what we ordinarily understand as consciousness, it disappears. But the source of that remains. The moment the mind comes, it will shine with consciousness again. It's like, so has the consciousness gone then? Does Brahman become unconscious? No, 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 no such. But it's not experienced as consciousness. It's like in deep space, outside Earth's atmosphere, it's actually flooded with light. But what does it look like? Dark, black. If a comet goes through it, the tail of the comet shines with light. Why? Is it generating light itself? No, no, no. It shines by reflecting sunlight which is flooding through space. But because there is nothing to reflect it, space looks dark. It looks black. Similarly, you are infinite consciousness. But you will not be... The word consciousness really cannot be attributed to you until there is a mind to manifest or reflect that consciousness. So the reality which is indicated by Sat, Chit, Ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, continues. But those words should be dropped. Those words are not qualities of that reality. If you say existence, infinite existence, infinite consciousness, infinite bliss are qualities of Brahman, this is Vishishtadvaita. This is not Advaita. Vishishtadvaita says God has these attributes. Ananta Kalyana Gunagana, infinite auspicious attributes of God. So that becomes a theistic religion in that case. But these are the very nature of the self. You are that. That's the non-dual Vedanta. So he says, even the words should be ultimately dropped once their function is, is fulfilled. Uh, Shankaracharya ends on that point. Maharaj, yes. One thing. So, you know, did mention this earlier also. In terms of, this is King Janaka's dream that Ashtavaka interprets. Yes. Yes. Yes, Satya, Right. Is something similar then? Here? Yes, of course. This is, I'm real. I means, yes, but be careful. Which I? When I say, I am real, I, the man sitting in that chair, am real? No. You have already limited the I with a location, with a form. What did Shankaracharya just say? How do you experience yourself? He gave 16 attributes. I am uh, happy. 
I am sad. I am old. I am worn out. And he goes on, 16 attributes. So is this the I am that is real? No. I am that is real is consciousness itself. These ones are appearances. This is Satyam, truth. This part is Mithya, the false. False does not mean totally non-existent. It appears. Dream is false, we say. So dream we see. Janaka, the emperor Janaka, he saw the dream. But it was revealed that it is false. Now the Ashtavakra is coming and telling him, this world also you are seeing, it's equally false. That dream was an appearance in your consciousness, this world is also equally an appearance in your consciousness. The consciousness, he says, you alone are real, when he says, which you? The emperor Janaka is real? No. The consciousness, which, uh, which is at the core, which you are, your being, that is real. Now let's go ahead. Thirty-three. So what follows? Two or three interesting observations Gaudapada gives. Thirty-three. Bhave rasadbhire vayam Bhave rasadbhire vayam Advayena chakalpitaha Advayena chakalpitaha Bhava apyadve Bhava apyadve neva Bhava apyadve neva Tasmad advayata shiva Tasmad advayata shiva Interesting observation. The Atman alone is imagined to be the unreal things of the world, dualities. And is also imagined to be non-dual. This world of samsara is, is superimposed or imagined on the non-dual reality, on non-dual self. Therefore, non-duality is auspicious. Advayata Shiva. Now, he makes a startling statement here. Duality is imagined, imaginary, false, superimposed. This we have been learning. Duality means, remember duality here means samsara, this world of differences. But now he says, non-duality is also imagined. Interesting point. We think, we keep on hammering till this point that non-duality is the reality and duality is false. Now he says, once you have realized that, also note that non-duality is also imagined. But there is a difference. Duality is imaginary and false. Non-duality is partially imaginary. <coughs> In what sense is non-duality imaginary? The name non-duality is imaginary. Imaginary or is set up to correct the error of duality. But the object which is, re the reality which the name non-dual refers to, that remains. That remains. It's like saying, in Vedanta what do we do? I am not the body, I am not the mind. I am the witness consciousness. Step one. Step two, what do we do? 
this body, mind and world, are they real things being witnessed by you, the witness consciousness? No. They are appearances in you, the witness consciousness. Correct? This is what we do. If the body, mind and the world are appearances in witness consciousness, they are not real things apart from that witness consciousness. Then are you really a witness? I'll repeat that. Are you really a witness? If there is no real second thing to be witnessed, then in what sense are you a witness? What are, if I'm saying that you are the pure subject. Alright. Next step, I say that all the objects, I reduce it back to you. There's no real object apart from you. Then in what sense are you a subject? Uh -huh. But that does not mean you are not there. You are there. The word subject does not apply to you anymore. The word witness does not apply to you anymore. But though you are there, exactly, you are the reality which remains over. But the word, term witness does not apply to you anymore. To understand this very nice example we use is, um, it applies to monks. Um, when we become monks, before that we are called brahmacharis, novices. So we have a shikha, uh, like a sacred tuft of hair. So the tuft of hair, when one becomes a sannyasi, the tuft of hair is cut off and thrown into the sacrificial fire. There's a ritual for that. Um, what does that symbolize? The ritualistic, the authority, that which gives you authority to perform Vedic rituals. So a Brahmin, for example, has a sacred tuft of hair and would wear a sacred thread. So that means you belong to a particular group which is with the authority to perform um, Vedic rituals. But when you become a monk, you give that up. You go beyond those groups, uh, particular straight up society. To show that you are going beyond the Vedas, you are going beyond ritualistic religion, conventional religion. You give up the signs of conventional religion. So that is the tuft of hair and the sacred thread which a Brahmin wears. So we take that off and we put it with, with appropriate mantras into the fire. Now, what's the example here? When the novice has, before becoming a monk, before becoming a swami, the novice has a sacred, the, the tuft of hair. The tuft of hair in Sanskrit is called shikha. Shikha. So shikha, the one who has a shikha is called shikhi. One bearing a shikha. The one who has a shikha is called a shikhi, the one bearing a shikha. When you become, when the person becomes a monk, the shikha is given up. So you cannot use the word shikhi for that person anymore. So you say the shikhi has, shikha has gone and the shikhi also has gone. Shikhi means one having the tuft of hair. But does it mean that the person has disappeared? No. Now you, you call him Swami so and so. You call him Swami Sarvapriyananda. Earlier my novice name was Brahmachari Gyanavrata Chaitanya. I know a mouthful. <laughs> it means the novice whose vow is knowledge. So I had a tuft of hair. Now when I performed the ceremony and I put off that, cut off that tuft of hair and threw it into the uh, sacrificial fire, and so now I am not a shikhi anymore because I don't have a shikha. Without a shikha, I cannot be a shikhi. So the shikhi is gone along with the shikha. But that does not mean I am gone. I am now Swami Sarvapriyananda. Similarly, when non-duality is dismissed by the understand when duality is dismissed by the understanding of non-duality, all of this which we are doing, 
there's no more duality then with respect to what will you call that reality a non-dual non-dual with respect to what there's no duality whatsoever so the word non-dual is also dropped but that does not mean that reality disappears that reality is still there whereas what we thought to be real earlier the dualistic world that is truly gone the word duality is gone and the real what it corresponded to these experiences these this this thing this is definitely gone but the non-dual reality continues only you cannot call it non-dual anymore do you see the shade of distinction these fine things one must grasp if you want to say grasp something like ashtavakra Ashtavakra, for example, there are things there which are mystifying at first. For example, one day, early in the, in the morning, I thought that I must have a very high non-dualistic thought. Where do I put my mind? What do I think about throughout the day? The nature of the non-dualist is always to think about Brahman. So I said, let me open. Ashtavakra is a very good source of very non, non, high non-dualistic thoughts. So I opened the book and I'll tell you the truth I opened it at a random page and the verse there said if anybody sees a transcendent Brahman let him think about Brahman but I do not see a second reality at all what am I to think about you see the subtle mistake you make that there is a non-dual Brahman and I must think about that that is good as, as a stage of practice but for a fully enlightened person, we'll say what Ashtavakra says. There is no second thing to think about. And I must think about, which means, see the seed of ignorance hidden there. That I am something I need to keep my mind on Brahman. No, what Brahman is there for you to keep your mind on? Only the only Brahman exists. So this is the thing. The term non-dual is to be dropped. But the reality, just like the term Shiki was dropped, but I still exist. Only that I am not a shiki anymore. The term subject is to be dropped. But the pure subject continues to exist. The term existence, consciousness, bliss is to be dropped. But that which was referred to by that term, that reality, that's always there. Whereas compared to that samsara, we are talking about very fine distinctions here. Compared to that samsara, which was called duality, dvaitam, that samsara is exposed as being false. And the word duality is dropped because it does not refer to anything real. So there is no samsara and the word samsara is also dropped. There is no duality and the word duality is also dropped. In contrast to that, non-duality. The non-dual reality continues, only you cannot correctly refer to it as non-dual anymore. So what he says here is, both duality and non-duality are imagined. The self, you, you are imagined as duality. When did I imagine myself as duality? I never do such philosophical things. <laughs> All the time, the moment you say, I am a waker, inhabiting a waker's universe. I am the dreamer in my dream universe. I am the deep sleeper in my deep sleep universe. In the blankness of deep sleep. This is called dvaitam, duality. Where is it imagined? In you, the turiya, the pure consciousness. This is what we learnt in the first chapter. So in I, the unchanging awareness. I experience myself, think of myself as a waker, experiencing a waking universe. Both waking universe and waker. Jagrat Prapancha and Vishwa. 
both are appearances in you, the Turiya, the pure consciousness. The Taijasa and Sapna Prapancha, the dreamer and the dreamer's dream world, both are appearances in you, the fourth, the pure consciousness. And the deep sleep, you the sleeper and your blankness of deep sleep, both are appearances in you, the pure consciousness. These appearances are duality. This is what we think, we thought it was real. Now it was proven to us in the, all that we have learned now, these are appearances and what is real is the non-dual consciousness. The self was falsely known as dualistic or dual. Now it is realized to be non-dual. But since the dual is not a reality, so with respect to what will you call it non-dual, the word non-dual also has to be dropped. But the self continues. You continue to exist. You are the reality which continues to exist. This is what he is saying. Yes. Does that mean that in uh, the scheme of the first humanity, there is a time when the I am is also dismissed? No, I am is not dismissed. Will not use the term I am. What it refers to will continue. Yeah. Yeah. The uses you need not use the term I am because the term I am also depends on using the mind. But you will continue. That I am will continue. But you will not say that I, you have to continuously experience yourself as I am. I am. I am. Not necessary. Yes. I'll come to you. It is true. Remember, chapter 1 is called Agama Prakarana, the, the chapter on the Upanishad. So, the chapter 1 continues, contains the entire teaching. Chapters 2, 3 and 4 explore it in detail. What we learned in chapter 1, we are now only beginning to discover the implications of that. So, chapter 1 taught us, pointed out how we experience ourselves. That I am a waker in a waker's universe, I am a dreamer in a dream universe, that I am a deep sleeper. This is not the teaching of chapter 1. Because this is what we experience life as. You don't, nobody needs to teach me that. Yeah. Chapter 1, use these three to point out the underlying non-dual consciousness. Compared to which these three pairs. Pairs means waker and waker's universe, dreamer and dreamer's universe, dream universe, deep sleeper and the deep sleep, merged, causal, potential, blankness. These three pairs are not real. They are appearances. The reality belongs to the underlying non-dual consciousness. This is where chapter 1 stopped. Right, so yeah. the, like the seventh, the seventh verse of the actual... Upanishad, Upanishad, which is part of chapter 1. Yes. yes. It does still refer to the dreamer, waker... True, that was the methodology. Okay. That was the methodology to point out the non-dual self. The method is always to start where we are. Where are we? We are, I am a waker in a waker's universe. Now show me how I am the non-dual consciousness. So the Upanishad says, look at your experience. Your experience has four aspects. Right? Soyam, Atma, Chatushpat, four aspects. What are the four aspects? Waker and waker's universe. Dreamer and dreamer's universe. Always related to your experience. Deep sleeper in the deep sleep blankness. So these three pairs are well known to us. What the Upanishad teaches you is that, notice, all of these three, they come and go, 
underneath it you continue that I am that non-dual the fourth one is the reality which the, these three are referring to that I am this is the teaching of the Upanishad and in the seventh mantra it also mentioned pra prapancha upashama the cessation of the universe which is the falsity of the universe by universe remember what is mentioned what is meant not only this physical universe waking universe but also the subtle universe our thoughts feelings emotions also the causal the ajnana from which all of these have come all are appearances they are not realities that part is being uh, explored in second chapter right i'll come to you you had a question yes um, so you gave an example of uh, light and space yes so if we assume take that example literally um, you said you need a comet to reflect it reflect. yes but the comet if, if the only reality is the light where did the comet come from mm -hmm. wait 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 every remember when we use examples the question was you use the example of light and space and you need a comet to reflect uh, the light then only the light becomes manifest otherwise the light is there but we don't experience it what did i use it for consciousness and mind consciousness by itself is not experienced as consciousness what you are experiencing right now is a mixture of consciousness and mind of course plus senses and objects and all of that for that i used the comet and light in space now your question was if the light is the only reality where did the comet come from remember an example is used to point out only one thing mm. sri ramakrishna says in the gospel upama agdeshi an example is used to explain one aspect of it so always that's that's where a teacher comes useful what is the example we're trying to tell me here the example is not that the light is the only reality i never mentioned that here the example was meant to show how light can be there yet not experienced at all to experience the pre-existing light you need a reflector like the comet otherwise you could have asked if light is the only reality where did space come from space is also there comet is also there so just as the comet reflects the light this is an example actually why i'm using the example is because uh, just day for yesterday i was in hartford mark twain's house and it's a very beautiful if you go there you'll see um, it's a museum now. Now, Mark Twain was born in a little log cabin, um, I think in Missouri probably. Um, and uh, Halley's Comet was in the sky at that time. Halley's Comet was there in the sky. In Halley's Comet, it comes in once in 75, 76 years. 76 years. So there's a nice painting of a little log cabin and the dark night sky with stars and Halley's Comet in the sky. Um, so the, symbolizing that uh, the birth of Mark Twain and Mark Twain always said in his life um, that I came with Halley's Comet and I shall go out again when it comes again I shall leave with Halley's Comet also <laughs> he said that and amazingly the day he died that night Halley's Comet was there in the sky so there is another painting next to that painting of the house where he died, which is a much bigger house here, close uh, somewhere in upstate New York, I think, um, where he died finally. And that's also a night sky with stars and everything. And there is Halley's Comet in the sky. So that was, I think, in the background of my mind. That's why I used the comet example. 
what all all i want to point out by that example is light which is there in the sky and this but space looks dark although so much light is there it takes a comet passing through it why a comet it could be a moon it could be anything it could be a satellite then you see it shining similarly you remain as consciousness though you are not experienced as such it's only when the mind becomes active your thoughts your thoughts shine in consciousness and you say oh i am aware i see i hear i smell i remember i desire i um, i want i understand i forget all of these experiences are conscious experiences and these experiences belong to the mind and the senses but they are revealed by consciousness Oh, that's what we have been doing. <laughs> yeah. Where did the mind come from? Where did the senses come from? Where did the body come from? Where did the universe come from? So it's self-revealing. Mm-hmm. Self-revealing. Consciousness is self-revealing. But if you ask, where did they come from? So the whole of second chapter we did. Did you find thirty-five answers were given? Thirty-five answers. Take your pick. What is the question you are you are asking? You are asking where did the universe come from? What is the answer? We have we had a, we had a list of thirty-five answers. Do you remember? God created the universe. Ah, the co- cause is time. Somebody said fate. Karma has created the universe. Thirty-five answers, and Gaurapada dismisses all of it. Dismisses all of it because they all followed the cri- criteria of. they are objects and they are impermanent they come and go then what was the answer finally of godapada what about the universe verse number 31 what did it, what does it say never created never ceasing the universe you answer to a question where did it come from where did the universe come from where did the body come from where did the mind come from gorapada's answer is very counterintuitively it never came yeah. where will they go it will never go that which has never come will never go and beginningless endless our immediate misconception is oh it must be then eternal universe is eternal beginninglessly there and endlessly there Gorapada is saying it is beginninglessly not there and endlessly not there <laughs> but appearing appearing <coughs> and the example he gives is the dream example if the same question you ask in the dream where does this universe come from what's the answer to that it didn't come it's an experience in the dreamer's mind this is an experience in consciousness but there has no creation means it has something has been produced so if it has no existence apart from consciousness it has not really been produced you see how profound these observations are the very reason these questions are coming again and again is although the answers have been given it's only after some time it begins to dawn what a radical statement that godapada is making it's it's no small thing the reason why people get profoundly disturbed by these things is because how deep they run it's only after a lot of thinking at first we may say yes yes i have understood i have understood then we ask finally how did the universe come that's what we have been doing for the last one year now then oh it's good the question has come and then we begin to realize oh my god this is what he said then what is going on here nothing is going on here except you the consciousness that's the answer you had a question i'll come to you
Constant, yes. Correct. So when I say I am Brahman or I am consciousness, the different I am actually, the I reference point is different. Yes. So how can it be the same? Yeah, I am in words is the same, but the reference point from which I'm talking, I am Brahman, I am consciousness, and we say I'm happy. Right. What we are trying to say here is, when you say I am Brahman or Atman or pure consciousness, I am not saying anything different from the I am itself. The I am itself is Brahman. If you realize the nature of the I am continuously present to you in all your experiences, you have found Brahman. What is normally happening is this I am, which is by nature, by I am I mean consciousness. I am is just the language I'm using for that. This is infinite, <coughs> undivided, continuous. It gets associated with all these 16 or many, many attributes and then feels limited and feels like what we call a samsari. In itself, it's not a samsari. Uh, this I am is what, what, yes, you had a question? This I am is what Raman Maharshi said, find out who you are. It's the pure I am, not these things. Remember, he's not even telling you to dismiss these things. Just note that they are not you. Not you, nor yours. They ap appear and pop in and out of your awareness. Don't be associated with them. Then you are free. He's not even saying that don't experience them. Shut your eyes to them. No. Let them come and go. We take them to be real. We hug them to ourselves and then we say we are trapped. We are unhappy. Yes. Yes. I am. Don't go too much on this I am. If you want to call this amness. Yeah. Correct. No problem. What is amness? But, be, but being awareness. Sat chit. What is the fundamental quality, fundamental reality about yourself? That you are real. And it's not just a dark reality, it's a shining reality, if I put it that way. Because if I say I am consciousness, for example, so I'm already, isn't the subject and subject kind of thing? But if we say there is consciousness, yes. then there is only subject as well. There is only, in fact, I am consciousness only means I am. That is consciousness itself. It's not I am something else which is consciousness. No, I am that. And that's what continues. But also one more additional fact, I don't know if this is creating a problem. If you read Nisargadatta, he makes a distinction between, he uses the words consciousness and awareness. Yeah. And this leads to confusion. Remember the original words he used were in Marathi. So what, he, for example, he sometimes says that at death, the body will go, mind will go, consciousness also will go. Consciousness is not the ultimate reality. But what he means by consciousness there is that empirical consciousness of the mind. Every night it goes away when you fall asleep, in deep sleep. So what he calls awareness or in the English translation is awareness is what I'm calling consciousness here. It's equal to amness, is equal to roughly equal to the I am. Yeah. 
it's not a very precise way of putting it. I'm just here. I'm just indicating that there is something continuous in all your experiences. Yeah. And that continuous part, if you search for it, you will never find it. If you search for it, you will only find an object. You will either find objects, thoughts, feelings, emotions, or the absence of objects in deep sleep or samadhi. But the one which reveals the presence and the absence of objects, that is not an object in itself. That's the real you. Wait, I think, Stan, did you have a question? Yes, uh, Swami. Uh, as a point of reference, uh, you said that when you transition from a brahmachari mm. to a sannyas, um, uh, you cut your hair, you threw it into the fire. Yes. What were you in that period of transition? You were no longer a brahmachari. Mm. You, were no, you were not a brahmachari. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Nothing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, you are basically a sannyasi. It's just you're giving the given the formal um, the name and the those things come later on. But you give up one form. It's, if you're saying in the transition period you are that pure consciousness. Of course, you are the pure consciousness all the time. But there's there is a funny thing about that. You know, when you become a monk, you perform in the, in Hinduism. There's something called the shraddha which is the uh, rituals performed for <coughs> ancestors who have passed away. And so you perform that for somebody who has passed away. Now, that's also a ritual. Once you become a monk, you are not allowed to perform those rituals because you have, you have given up all claim to being a ritualistic Hindu anymore. Now, what happens is, then who will perform those rituals for your ancestors once you become a monk? So to, to fulfill your obligations, before you become a monk, you perform all those rituals. The Shraddha is performed for all your ancestors who have passed away, including, which is never done otherwise, including your living father and mother also. So that's also performed. So that because after they die, you cannot perform anymore because you already become a monk. And including for yourself. It's the, usually the children who perform these uh, rituals for their parents. But because you are a monk, so you will not have any children. So there's nobody who's going to perform that for you. So you perform it for yourself. You are living. It's called Atma Shraddha. And so if, then it is finished. That is done before you become a monk. One day before that. So the joke was that the, once these novices have performed the Shraddha, it's done for people who are dead. So you're dead also. <laughs> so you're called a bunch of ghosts. <laughs> you're not yet a monk. And you are formally dead to society. So in between, <laughs> you are like a bunch of ghosts. Yes. I'll come to you. You had your hand up. Yes. Um, Swamiji, I think my question would be better posed if I used the uh, example of the ocean and the wave. Yes. The one is neither created nor is it destroyed, right? And, I mean, that's the premise of that's That's what we have just discussed. Because? Neither created nor destroyed because? Because it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Not because it always exists. Not because it's eternal. Yeah. There are some theories that the world is not created nor destroyed because the world exists eternally. Not in that sense. Yeah. yeah. No. So the question is this. In that wave example, you had said there is the ocean and you know a wave gets formed and she 
she goes to her school, etc., friends, etc., etc. That's a long example, interesting example you had given. But my question is that where is the source of error? How does that error begin? Where a whatever tranche of ocean or you know a part of the ocean or whatever starts perceiving that I'm the weight, that I'm no longer that because at that stage it's not karma. Because you, you, karma hasn't yet, the cycle hasn't started. Is it then just Leela? So there are a lot of little things involved in that question. You don't even have to go into uh, the wave and ocean example. You can straight away ask about us. You see, all this is due to ignorance and the ignorance is being corrected by knowledge in Vedanta. But if you ask, where did the ignorance start? That's what you're asking? Right. Right? How many times have I answered this in the class? <laughs> Don't worry, I'll go on answering it okay. till, till, the, till the, not till the end of time, till the end of ignorance. <laughs> okay, so how does ignorance start? Shankaracharya says, ignorance is beginningless. Anadi avidya, beginningless. If you ask, if you say beginningless, that sounds like a cop-out. You are avoiding the question. How can it be beginningless? Note that here Gaudapada has said the world is beginningless. It doesn't exist. In the same sense, ignorance is also beginningless. Beginningless. How can ignorance be beginningless? Um, you say, so if you say that why does ignorance start? How does ignorance start? And the answer is it's beginningless. It's another way of saying that there is no beginning to ignorance. If there's no beginning to it, then you cannot ask why it began. Basically, it's another way of saying that the question is wrong. The question itself is wrong. Um, Swami Vivekananda says, uh, how did the one become the many? How did the one become the many? One means Brahman. If there is a one and it is appearing as the many, how did the one become the many? The first answer will be which Gaudapada has given, that the one did not become the many, the one appears as the many. So the many is false. If something is appearing, appearance, the word appearance means falsity. So the many is false. The one is real. But you can still ask, why is the one appearing as the many? Why? Uh, do you follow? Why did the one become the many? Answer, no it did not. The one is the, still the one, it appears as the many. But why is the one appearing as the many if you ask? And then the answer will be, it, uh, the question is wrong. But I have explained earlier also that at that point Swami Vivekananda Shankaracharya also leaves it. But I persisted in asking, why is the question wrong? You can ask, why is the question wrong? I can ask the question, why is the one appearing at all? Brahman could have remained as Brahman. Why is it appearing as the world? Okay, I even admit the world is false. Vedanta says Brahman is real, the world is false, the world is like a dream. But why is it at all appearing in this way at all? If you ask that, the question itself is wrong. Why is the question wrong? After all, if you ask, why am I seeing a dream? There is an answer to that. Um, that you had these experiences in your waking state and therefore you are having such a dream. A good answer to that. But about the world itself, this appearance, you are saying it appears. And if you ask, why does it appear? The answer is uh, that the question itself is wrong. Why is the question wrong? In um, the logic which I gave, because of Maya, you're asking why Maya? Why is there Maya at all? Why is there Maya at all? The question is wrong. Why is the question wrong? Look at what you're asking. 
when you ask why what answer will satisfy you because you want a cause you want a cause perfectly valid you can you are you are right in asking for a cause but if you ask for the cause of a cause of causation itself then the question is illogical maya is time space causation like if you say what is outside space the question is wrong if you ask what is outside the world question is correct what's outside the hall question is correct what's inside the building question is correct but what is outside space if you ask question is wrong why because outside and inside are space words without reference to space you can't ask outside inside so if you ask what was there before time the time began with the big bang if you ask what was there before time in a certain sense the question is not correct because before and after are time words you can ask what was there before the earth was created you can ask what was there before um, um, we were born but you can't ask what was there before time because before and after are time words only when time is there then you can ask before and after similarly you can't ask why for causation you can't ask for a cause of causation because cause and effect begins with causation for anything in the universe you can ask what is the cause of this but what is the cause of causation itself is a meaningless question so only when you accept causation then in causation cause and effect operates correct so this question when you say why maya you are basically asking why causation makes no sense there this was in fact one of the great discoveries of gaurapada this is called ajatavada um, he uh, says that brahman is beyond causation brahman is not causally linked to this universe just as this universe is not causally linked to your dream universe your dream universe was not actually produced from this universe so the world was not produced from brahman yes Yes. Which is unreal. Whatever we observe, whatever we experience, the reflection in consciousness, but really is not real. It's not real. Not a real. Real is, is the existence consciousness. Uh, yes. 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 Take it one step further. What we observe in science, the rules of science, it's what we observe. They are real only in our consciousness. They're not real per se. They are real in our consciousness. Yes, but you make a distinction between our consciousness as the consciousness reflected in the body mind of one person. and the world of science which is external to that that consciousness it's not that the gravity exists in newton's consciousness it's in that one consciousness we're talking about where newton and gravity both appear yes but they appear in consciousness yes right let's take it one step further language appears hmm. in consciousness yes logic appears in consciousness in consciousness correct teachings appear in consciousness right god of all teachings appear in consciousness correct correct none of this is real none of this is real correct including these teachings yes yes absolutely <coughs> absolutely in fact uh, they say that once one become enlightened vyatra veda aveda bhavanti where vedas are no longer vedas they don't apply to the one who has who is enlightened because you have realized the the reality which underlies all these teachings also these teachings are only appointed to that reality and you if and when you get there all this just goes away goes away means it's unreal it's it's yes in fact that alone exists these don't exist as they seem to exist it becomes like 
suddenly when you realize it's a movie doesn't mean the movie goes away the movie is still playing you realize the deeper truth from that the movie it's a movie there's a screen which is real compared to that screen all the characters and events in the movie are not real but in the movie itself the plot remains the same whatever the director had planned that remains the same even when you realize it's a movie it still exactly is the same and that experience will continue vedanta says let the experience continue it's a movie then it's entertainment it's hollywood it's fun then it's only when you do not realize the underlying reality to be yourself then it becomes samsara you're trapped in it it's like being trapped in a movie like a horror movie for example without knowing that it's a movie then it becomes terrible if you don't like the unreal real binary try what swami vivekananda said lower truth to higher truth from a surface level to a deeper level yes so back to 33 yes you said that non duality is also imagined yes so is the imagination part related to the words the description the the way we in our minds formulate non-duality? yes non duality non duality is a technique meant to point out the falsity of duality and the reality beyond that yeah. we call it non dual but that also term has to be given up because it's technically no longer correct if there is no real duality at all it's the way our mind thinks about it yes it's a technique to set you free from it so this has always been applied um this this approach and they say that there is a when you light a fire there is a log of wood which you set on fire and then write up it's called a funeral pyre when you light it when it's burning then you throw that burning log of wood into the fire itself that log of wood is also burnt up in that sometimes you put a chemical in the water which dissolves impurities and the chemical itself gets dissolved similarly non duality is a concept which sets you free from the samsara of duality does not mean non duality also disappears the reality which you call non duality that remains just like i remained but i'm not called a shikhi anymore shikhi is gone does not mean i am gone similarly the term non duality no longer applies but that reality remains as as you you are that here they are trying to be very fine and precise so the term is uh, a similar process is applied by nagarjuna in the in the mula madhyamaka karika shunyavada the, the philosophy of emptiness in buddhism um so there instead of non duality they use the word term non duality also they use the word shunyam which means void void emptiness and there's a very nice verse there which nagarjuna has written he was about 500 years before gaudapada himself he says there emptiness shunyata is meant to set you free from the illusion of a concrete objective reality but those who take emptiness itself to be the reality for them there is no for them there is no hope yeah so they have a topic called emptiness of emptiness <laughs> but that's the final thing that then you have to let go of that emptiness also but you remain as the reality which is so the emptiness is a technique to set you free non duality here also is a technique like that but be careful here it does not mean that brahman which non duality refers to that brahman disappears no just the term non duality is no longer appropriate when duality is dismissed yes the way i reconcile a lot of these questions 
and you can tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm not thinking about it the proper way, it's almost as if we were high on Maya. Everything appears to be one thing, and it's not until you're sober from it that then, or enlightened, then at that point, then everything ceases to exist. Correct. Correct. As uh, I think Swami Trigunati Tanandaji, I forget who, just one Swami in the Bay Area, he said that on this side of Maya we have questions and no answers. And on the other side of Maya, the enlightened persons, they have the answer but no question. <laughs> they have only the answer, no question. Ashokanji said, right? Ashokanji said, right. Probably that. You had a question? Uh, Swami, um, so you're not on the other side of Maya yet. <laughs> you still have a question. Yes. On this side of Maya, I think uh, free will is supposed to be a special character humans have, and that's um, supposed to di distinguish or differentiate us from the rest of the universe. So when I think the universe is uh, unreal and our body is unreal, that's easier for me to uh, realize perhaps than to give up that thing which you know I have been doing the whole of my life. Choose this, choose that, choose that. That's what defines me who I am right now. Hmm. And those choices and the free will. Even that is appearance is a little hard. So, I mean, Brahman doesn't do anything. Hmm. Something is doing something hmm. which is resulting in where I am. Right. <laughs> this is a question of free will. Question of free will. Uh, now, ultimately, there's no free will either. But, remember, the moment we say there is no free will, that means, am I saying it's all a deterministic universe? No, it's not. That's not what Vedanta wants to say. So there is this beautiful um, article by Arindam Chakravarti, which I had uh, recommended. Uh, if you want, I can share it with you. He has written a beautiful piece on an essay on free will, the problem of free will. The, the question, the article is titled, Why pray to a God who can hear the anklets on the feet of an ant? Sri Ramakrishna says, God hears everything. So, you know, you pray to God. God somebody asked, does God hear our prayers? He said, God hears your prayers. God can hear the anklets on the feet of an ant. You know, little boys and girls in India, they put, they put anklets on their feet. So imagine an ant. It has tiny feet. And the t how tiny the anklets will be and how to uh, <laughs> subtle the sound. God hears the sound of the anklets on the ant's feet. Now, Arindam Chakravarti asks this question. If God knows all of this, then why even why bother to pray also to, to our God? God will know what you want. And then dispose of your prayer the way he wants to. So why even pray to a God who hears the sound of the anklets on an ant's feet? Basically, it's a question of free will. So in that article, what he has done is, first of all, he has examined the whole field. There's in fact, there is a, right now also, a lot of discussion is going on on free will. There's an, I think, Oxford Companion to Free Will, that uh, book is there. So a lot of, in philosophy, in neuroscience, it's a very big issue. In justice, the legal system. If you have free will, then one can be punished. But if you don't, one does not have free will. Uh, insanity argument. Then you, you're, you're, you cannot be, uh, or at least the quantum of punishment has to be reduced, or the treatment has to be given, something like that. So legal issues, philosophical issues, nowadays neuroscience issues. Uh, what is the neuroscience of free will? Is there a free will at all? So he examines the whole field. He does the, in that paper, he does it in three levels. First level, he says, it appears to us that we have free will. When you examine it, he gives three possibilities. Yes, we have free will. 
or there is no free will, determinism, everything is determined. Or what he calls, or what is in the field, it is called compatibilism. Free will is also there, determinism is also there. Three, uh, these are not three theories, but three groups of theories. In each group, there are different theories. So he does a very masterful survey of all the theories. And basically what you see is, we feel we have free will, just like you said, I choose and I'm leading my life according to my free will. But when you examine it, how? You examine it through uh, philosophy, through neuroscience today. He gives those uh, that data and the, those uh, findings. The uh, scary revelation is that there, there can't be anything like free will. We feel we have free will. And science and philosophy shows that we cannot have free will. Even religion seems to say we don't have free will. It's all God's will. Sri Ramakrishna would say again and again. So second level upon investigation, no free will. Then he comes to the third and final level. He says, yes, ultimately there is not free will, but freedom. So he says, free will, day to day, we, it appears to us and we live our life like that. Otherwise, society would not be possible. Just the legal system itself would not be possible if we, if we don't attribute free will to a person. So we live our life like that. Upon examination, no free will. And deeper, when you come to spirituality, Vedanta or what Sri Ramakrishna says, no free will, but freedom. You see, this is freedom. But there is no will here. Yeah. Consciousness is free, absolutely free from everything. It's infinite and free. So that article is worth reading. Somebody else had a question? Yes. Back to this, uh, I am happy and sad. Isn't that I am referring to ego? No, no, no. no. Uh, it is just the way of putting it. Because the ego also will disappear in uh, deep sleep, for example. But deep sleep is also an experience to consciousness. Here the co I am is referring to consciousness. The moment you own I am happy, I am sad, I am old, I am young, that is the ego. Ego is an operation of the mind. Even that operation of the mind appears to consciousness. The ego also. Are you not aware of the activities of your ego? You are aware of it. What is aware of the activity of the ego? That is what I mean by I am here. Yeah. If you strip away all of this from the I am, then you will go beyond the ego. The ego is a functioning of the mind. Okay. Um, all right, let's go ahead. Let's do one more verse. Number 34. So what did we learn in 33? Bhave rasadbhi reva ayam advayena chakalpitaha. I am this self, you the self, pure consciousness. You are imagined as a samsara of dualities, as these false appearances. Bhavir asadbhi. If you asadbhi bhavir, by these false appearances you experience yourself. It's literally what we did in the first chapter. You, the consciousness, how do you experience yourself? Waker and waker's world, dreamer and dream world. By these false appearances is the, is the self uh, seen in duality. The same self is also imagined as non-dual. When? By all these teachings. So both are equally false? No, not equally false. The second one is the concept which sets us free from the falsity of the first one. So he says, 
Bhava api adhvaneva. All these appearances in the world, whether in waking world or dream world, they are all imagined ultimately on the non-dual self. By realizing the non-duality of the self, the falsity of the universe, the falsity of duality is realized. Therefore, he says, tasmat advayata shiva. Therefore, non-duality is auspicious. Auspicious, not the final truth. The final truth is beyond this also. You cannot express it. You are that. You are that final truth. But to reach that, non-duality is auspicious. Non-duality is the one which sets you free from this, from samsara. The duality, as long as you take the duality to be real, you're trapped in samsara and you are affected by the sufferings of samsara. When you use non-duality to realize the falsity of duality, you are set free from samsara. And then you realize that technically it's also not non-dual, technically it's beyond language. That's just a technical matter. You remain as that. In fact, another verse later on he will say, some prefer Dvaita michanti kechana, advaita michanti chapare, dvaita dvaita vivarjitam tattvam. He says, some prefer duality, some prefer non-duality. The truth is beyond duality and non-duality. But that cannot be expressed in language. Even non-duality itself cannot be expressed properly in language. But you, the thing is that you are the truth. It's not an unknown truth. Yeah. So he says, then, are both imagined, but not in the same sense. Non, the duality is false in name and as the, the things themselves are false and the term also is false and it traps us in samsara and it is productive of great misery. This is the problem we are trying to transcend. Non-duality is the way what it refers to is real. Only the term itself has to be discarded once the work is done. Yeah. In duality what it refers to, what does it refer to this world? That's false. And the term itself is false. Non-duality, what it refers to is true. You the reality, Brahman. But the term non-duality is only with reference to duality. Once duality is seen to be false, non-duality itself loses all uh, reference. Just yesterday, I'll come. Just yesterday, we were reading in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna says, when I come down, come down from Samadhi, I try to count from 1 to 10. And I say one, two, then seven, eight or something like that. Then somebody remarked, oh, it's because all is one. Immediately Sri Ramakrishna corrected him. It is neither one nor two. It is beyond one and, uh, it is beyond one and two. This is exactly what he's trying to say. You see, he's not saying it philosophically. Because he sees the truth. For him it's absolutely clear. He also wants to make those fine corrections that uh, don't mistake it to be and somebody said if you are very fond of, of Advaita Vada Advaita Vada means the philosophy of Advaita if you are very fond of Advaita Vada you will get the philosophy of Advaita if you are very fond of Advaita Brahman you will get Brahman Advaita Vada is a structure to help you which we are learning then, then let's take the so the what to take away from this is Advayata Shiva, non-duality is auspicious. Number 34. 
न पृथक न पृथक किंचेद न पृथक न पृथक किंचेदिदो विदुतिदो विदु देन वॉट इज दिस वर्ल्ड बैक टू वॉट वी आर एक्सपीरियंसिंग देन वॉट इज द नेचर ऑफ दिस थिंग इट्स अ मिस्ट्री ही सेज दिस इयर दिस वर्ल्ड वेन असर्टेन फ्रॉम द ascertained from the standpoint of its essential nature does not exist as different from the self from you the self it does not exist as the self so do phenomenal things do not exist as different or non different from one another or from the self this is what the knowers of truth understood those who have realized enlightened they realize this this world what is this world is it a separate reality from yourself this is what we understand not, not right now this is samsara he says no it does not if you try to ascertain its nature apart from consciousness you will not succeed then is this world consciousness itself that also you cannot say why can you can you not say this world is consciousness are we not trying to say it you may try to say it by force because it's a non duality class but no it's not identical to consciousness why consciousness is eternal this world is non eternal consciousness is the pure subject this world is an object um consciousness uh, the consciousness is conscious it, it, it's consciousness the world brahman is the self is consciousness the the world is what is called jada insentient so in every aspect this world is different from consciousness how can it be identical to consciousness yet it cannot exist apart from consciousness we saw it has no intrinsic existence it's an object to consciousness so is it a part of consciousness is it a part of consciousness is this world a part of you the consciousness cannot be again because consciousness has no parts brahman is partless akhanda is partless so this what is this world this is what is called in vedanta anirvachaniya cannot be said to be absolutely real yet cannot be dismissed as totally unreal because you experience it all those things in the dream which you saw the people you met the events which happened the places you visited are they you in one sense yes but are you a park and a dog and a, and your friends and your um, all those things you experienced in your dream are you all those no not really do they exist apart from you in your dream no not really are they part of you are lots of people and places part of you no then what are they so in the same way this world the what that we experience is paradoxical in fact modern science also i mentioned this earlier i was reading a book on uh, godel who was in princeton university he was one of the leading mathematicians logicians of the world incompleteness theorem So Rebecca Goldstein I think who has written a book on Godel where did I read she writes that the greatest discoveries of the 20th century in science if you look at the names Einstein's theory of relativity Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty and Godel's incompleteness theorems and the two of them incompleteness theorems Now, if you contrast it with what scientists thought in the 19th century, they thought science is progressing so well. Yeah? So, within 50, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, in every field, they thought the fields will be completed. 
will have perfect knowledge. If you had asked them, what do you think will be the theories of 20 and 100 years later, they would have not said relativity, they would have said certainty. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would have said absoluteness, not relativity. They wouldn't have said uncertainty, they would have said certainty. In mathematics, they would have said completeness, not incompleteness. In fact, I think there was a program, uh, Hilbert's program or something, the great mathematician, da David Hilbert. He said, if you complete these, if you solve these problems, then the field of mathematics will be complete. And there were attempts to complete the field of mathematics. And in that attempt, Godel showed it cannot be completed. The very nature of logic is that you cannot have completeness, completeness only at the cost of consistency or consistency only at the cost of incompleteness. I'm speaking like somebody who knows it, I don't know it at all. <laughs> uh, so, now what struck me when I, when I was reading that is, look at the terms, relativity, incons uh, uh, relativity uncertainty, uncertainty incompleteness. These are the very terms of Maya. These are the very terms of Maya. I know, I'm not making it a superficial observation because I know each of them has a very technical meaning. But in general also, look what it means for science and mathematics. So at the, in fact what has happened today is they say, the, those who know physics and mathematics, they, they, they say they know better, much better than us. So they say that there's a scandal at the heart of physics. The two fundamental theories of physics, general relativity and quantum mechanics, which explain, which is finally what physics is, they're incompatible with each other. The two theories which describe this universe, one universe, they mean different things. So how it can be reconciled? It has to be reconciled somehow. They don't know. We don't know yet. Mathematics. At the heart of mathematics, they say li there lies a monster, which is Godel's incompleteness. So, this is what he wants to say. The, the world, ultimately, if you consider it, in itself, it's a mystery. For our purposes, no problem, because you are the reality. Let it appear. It's fun to you. Yeah. And you can do whatever you want in it. You can do business, you can do science, you can lead a family life, you can be a monk, you can do Vedanta. All of that is possible within the world. But the underlying reality is you yourself. Um, so he says here, the verse said, 34. What is the world? It is not the self, you the pure consciousness. It's not that. It is not a world of multiplicity apart from you. That also does not exist. Na prithak, na prithak kinchit. So, not, uh, this world does not exist as one with you and the differences in this world, he says even difference in this world cannot be proved. It's an interesting observation, I'll just say what he means to say and leave it at that. Uh, it may sound crazy, he says even in this world, if you forget non-duality also, even in this world which seems to be a world of multiplicity, plurality, difference, literally the whole world is, is construed on difference. You are sitting on the chair. Clearly the chair is different and you are different. That's why you can use a sentence like I am sitting on the chair. But Advaita attacks this, you know. Advaita says, chair and you are different. 
So there are three things you have said. You, the person. Person is man is sitting on the chair. Man, chair and man and chair are different. Man, chair and difference. The man is revealed by I can see the man. I can see the chair. But can you see the difference? They seem to be different. But is difference a form which can be seen? Tell me the color of the difference. Tell me the size of the difference. Tell me the form of the difference. Difference is not something that can be seen. Difference is not revealed by your sense organs. Bheda in Sanskrit, Bheda is not something that is revealed by Pramana, by sense organs. The difference is not an object. It must be an object, then, then what is it then? Vedanta will say difference is not an object, it's not, it's not there at all. But it seems to be there, whole world is predicated on difference. Without difference no samsara is possible. If you take difference out of it, it will all resolve back into a mass of blankness which you experience in deep sleep. Only when you introduce difference, then you have a world of colors and shapes and people, I and this, subject and object. But Vedanta asks the fundamental concept, the linchpin, the, the seed from which emerges the sprout of this universe, that is difference. In Sanskrit, Bheda. But what is Bheda? You can see objects, you can see object A and object B. But the difference between object A and B you cannot see. You might say, what a crazy thing to say. But the fact is, if you, if you follow it up, you will see it's true. It's not an, it's, wait, uh, wait, it's not an, ob what Vedanta says is, it's not an object of vision. You can't see difference. It's not an object of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Because all you can see are colors and shapes. And, but the two things are different. So, uh, is it an object of inference? They say, um, uh, Anuman, inference. Do you infer two things are different? Vedanta says, no. That which cannot be experienced by direct perception can never be in inferred. How? Um, you say that there is fire on the hill. The classic example in uh, Indian philosophy. There is fire on the hill because you see smoke. But you can infer smoke from the fire. The fire brigade goes out. Not on the hill here in Manhattan. There is fire on the skyscraper. Why? Because, because of smoke. And then the fire brigade uh, goes rushing there. But... You can infer that because you have seen fire and smoke together at some point. If you can never see them together, there is no valid grounds for, uh, for uh, inferring fire from seeing smoke. Similarly, you see two objects, but the two objects are different. How will you infer unless you have seen difference somehow? Unless you have made difference an object of your experience somehow. So it is not different by Pratyaksha, but that means by perception. It's not, difference is not proved by anumana, inference. Is difference proved by the, by scripture, Shruti? No, Shruti says there is no difference. Shruti wants to, that is Upanishads want to establish Advaita, non-duality. No difference. Shruti says, Neha Nana Stikinchana, there is no plurality here whatsoever. <coughs> so plurality or difference is not established by any source of knowledge. You can see, you know, the Jews have a word, chutzpah. What we take for granted, our whole life is predicated on that. Advaita has the daring to make an attack on that very thing, plurality. The, actually, the attack is on the Nyaya philosophers. Nyaya, school of philosophy in India, is a pluralistic school. They admit difference. So there are lots of things. So, for example, they will say things like, 
it is a very common sense approach. They say difference means it is a relationship between things. So, man is sitting on a chair. Here is a man entity A, here is a chair entity B and the relationship between them is that one is sitting on the other. Relationship is R. Advaita attacks the conception of relationship also. If you have relationship, that means there are two entities which have to be related. Advaita says um, relation is not possible. How? Advaita asks, so you have three things, entity A, entity B and the relationship between them. You know, like saying that the pen is on the book. Pen is an entity, book is an entity and the relationship between them is one is on the other. That's the relationship. Now Advaita asks the question, so A is real, right? Yes. B is real, right? Yes. Is the relationship real or not? Yes. It's also an entity, a different kind of entity. In that case, if relationship is a, is a real, real entity and A is a real entity and R exists, relationship exists between A and B, then what is the relationship between A and R here? What is the connection between them? You have to say another relationship. How is entity A related to entity R? What's the connection? Because they are not same. If they are same, is A equal to the relationship? No. Then this entity, whatever it is, there must be some relationship between two different entities. So between A and R, if you say R1, you know where this is going. What is the relationship between A and R1 and R1 and R? <laughs> then you will have multiple order relationships. Endless regression. Mm. It turns all the way down. So, Advaita says this is true of every relationship. Then you have to admit that relationship is not a real entity. In that case, there is no relationship between A and B. <laughs> so, this thing falls apart. Uh, so, this is what he is saying. We will end, end with this one. 34th verse is saying that. So, what is the nature of the world? It is not identical with you, the pure consciousness. It is not independent of you, the pure consciousness. It is not part of you, the pure consciousness. Even within the world, things are neither different from each other, nor are they the same. So, is, is the pen and the book the same? No. So, are they related, two different things related? No, can't be. Seems to be. You say, but it appears like that. That Advaita agrees with. Yes, it appears like that. That's exactly what we are saying. It's not real, but it appears like that. It's a movie. It's a dream. Na prithak, na prithak kinchit. None of these things are separate entities. None of these things are virtually one identical mass either. Who knows this? This is not the way we see the universe. True. Not the way we ordinarily see the universe. Tattva vidau viduhu. The ones who know the truth, they know this about the universe. Yeah. That's the way they saw it. I guess if you look at the cutting edge theories of modern science and mathematics, they are also revealing something like this, a very strange universe. They are revealing a very, very strange universe. Very different from our common sense universe. Yeah. So is the effect of all this 
Yes. Doesn't seem to be. Seems to be profoundly disturbing. But the world we are trapped in is profoundly disturbing. The world we are trapped in is profoundly disturbing. Somebody said, somebody asked a question that, um, that it will destroy our, our um, ordinary life and it will lead to depression and unhappiness. Yeah. It's ordinary life which leads to depression and unhappiness. <laughs> it sets you free from this. Remember, nothing will disappear. This world will continue exactly as it is. In the waking you will see the world, in the dream you will see another world, in deep sleep every night the world will disappear as it always has been. Appearing and disappearing. Only what is revealed to you is one non-dual truth which is underneath this world, which is at the background, which is you yourself. In fact, if you realize the truth of this, if you have an insight into this, basically you are free immediately. I was in Providence, Rhode Island this Sunday. After the talk, which was about waking, dreaming, deep sleep and the fourth beyond that, one gentleman, he got up and People are coming forth and talking, asking questions. This person just walked past. I get it. There's nothing to do. <laughs> and he walked away. He is right in a way. But you must know that. <laughs> yeah. And then keep on doing whatever has to be done. There's absolutely no problem. All right. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu. Two announcements quickly. One is that next Wednesday we have a very special class. Um, Brahmachari Ayan Maharaj, he's a young monk from our university in, in India. He's coming. He's written this book. You will see on the way out there's a notice Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality. And it's been released by Oxford University Press last month. So he's coming. He has been called to give a talk at Princeton University based on that book. And he is very kindly agreed to give a talk here. So next Wednesday, 4 o'clock to 5.30, Ayan Maharaj will give the, give the class on um, Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy of Vijnana Vedanta. He'll give a talk on that. But being the professor that he is, he's already sent an ha a handout for every one of you. So that will be circulated to you uh, with today's class. And he has given instructions, it's a long handout, but so you don't have to read the whole thing. But the first five pages, if you read, that's enough. If you, that's a shortcut. But you sh at least those five pages you should read, in case he starts asking questions. <laughs> so, come next time, four o'clock, attend Ayan Maharaj's class. Uh, it'll be very interesting, yeah. All right. And second announcement, happy Thanksgiving.